I'm coming. I'm coming. I, I just, I, I saw something right as the show started. And it's one of those things where you wish you could time delay your, your start by a few seconds. <laughs> Welcome. It's Eric Erickson. And I, I, I just saw this literally as I'm coming on air. Uh, Lloyd Grove uh, at the Daily Beast. The headline, Fox News fans are strangely serene, but MSNBC viewers are terrified. Coronavirus survey shows cried while watching coronavirus coverage, refused to wear a mask. The effect of the crisis on television's viewers depends on which news channel they watch. A new study shows watching the major cable and broadcast news outlets during the coronavirus pandemic. Americans on lockdown are more than twice as likely to cry during <laughs> SNPC reports than during Fox News shows, specifically 23%. <laughs> Uh, oh, I love grabbing these stories right as I come on air where none of us have seen them. 23% of MSNBC viewers have been wet-eyed and choked up compared to 10% of Fox News fans. Those cold-hearted SOBs at Fox, how dare they not cry? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this is so unprofessional to me. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You can call in if you want. Just please don't cry on me. A far greater percentage of MSNBC viewers, 67%, than Fox viewers, 45%, are living in fear during the lethal outbreak which has so far killed more than 100,000 people in the United States. And the more hours they watch each day, the more terrified they become. Fox News fans, meanwhile, are far less likely than MSNBC or CNN loyalists to follow CDC guidelines to wear masks, scarves, or bandanas over their faces when they venture outside. That is... 25% of Fox News viewers follow the example of President Donald Trump and go maskless, while only 14% of the folks tune to see, wait a second, 14 to 25%, that's, that's the difference? Really? That's actually not a whole lot. 14% of MSNBC and CNN viewers leave home without face coverings. Those are just some of the results of the COVID-19 American News Fear Index, an extensive public opinion survey of an online panel, an online panel of 4,021 adults, 18 and older. It was released Thursday morning by Newsy, the 24-hour live streaming news app that also reaches more than 40 million households via various cable and satellite television providers. Following the deadly spread of the novel coronavirus, Americans voraciously consume news in March and April, Newsy's Fear Index reports. And while some of the record ratings and blockbuster traffic is flattening, we're getting a clearer picture of how heightened news consumption may have impacted our psyche and how the impact differs depending on a viewer's network choice. The online survey conducted during the final week of April by the YouGov global polling firm determined that only 29% of Fox News fans feel more stressed out and anxious than usual while watching their favorite program compared to 43% of CNN viewers. Overall, 65% of U.S. residents who watch the various news broadcasts are worried about becoming infected. Newsy executive Christina Hartman, however, argues that it's no accident that viewers of her down-the-middle melodrama shunning outlet 
which boasts newsrooms in Missouri, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Denver, tend to be marginally less fearful than those who get their opinion information from CNN or MSNBC. Newsy's average fear factor is 6.23 compared to 6.85 at CNN and 6.88 at MSNBC. And Fox News registered a Zen-like 5.47. Hang on a second. I need to tweet something. Uh, yes, I do. Philip and Charlie braced themselves for what I'm going to do. I'm going to tweet in real time with you people. This is the funniest story of the day. Wonder how many Fox viewers have their Zen-like calm because they have more Jesus than the folks watching MSNBC. NBC. Ta-da! I mean, seriously, you know, when you realize that God's in control and and God is in charge, you're probably less prone to freaking out, are you not? And how many MSNBC viewers even believe in what they call the imaginary sky god over on that channel? Makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, folks. I, I mean... If we're going to say that, oh, it, it's 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 all because of Fox, it's all because of Fox. They're not telling people how awful it is. I mean, there was, I mean, uh, it just ghoulish levels of disaster porn on CNN last night. I was actually kind of horrified to get up this morning and see all of the uh, coverage, the outrage between Don Lemon and uh, what's his name, Chris Cuomo, over at, at oh wait, stop, no, wrong files opening. Uh, over at, at CNN, it was just genuinely this this disaster porn. Hey, let's br- blame the president for all of these deaths, guys. It was, I mean, listen, listen to some of this stuff. Well, so far, Don, he hasn't mentioned it. We did see the president note that we were getting close to the six-digit death toll yesterday, but he was only talking about it in that context of how many lives he believes he's saved by the measures he's taken, saying that otherwise it would have been a million and a half to two million people, he believed, that would have died from coronavirus. Though, Don, we know those numbers actually come from if there had been no mitigation efforts, no social distancing, no mask wearing, no shutdowns, things of that nature. That's what the models are projecting at the time. And the president was here in Florida tonight. He was hoping to reach a much different milestone to see this space launch. And of course, that was thwarted by poor weather. But as the president returned to Washington, he did not speak to reporters about the death toll on the record, on camera, anything like that. And he hasn't tweeted about it either. So far, he's tweeting plenty of times about Twitter. He's retweeting praise from Lou Dobbs, calling him the greatest president ever, maybe. But he has not mentioned so far this historic but grim milestone that we've reached yeah, he's tweeting crazy where is lou dobbs now is he is lou dobbs is on fox where is he now does anybody know oh on the business channel okay yeah he is i haven't seen him yeah yeah don't know <laughs> wow and then there's chris cuomo trump is not a king except maybe in his own fantasy land he can't do anything to twitter except except use it to do something to great effect bravo sir bravo You distracted us from the dead and the dire situation that you're basically ignoring because you think reopening at any price is a price worth paying for your reelection. Well, not here. Not here. 
Not here. You're not going to forget those faces from all those places. You're not going to remain silent. You're going to be brought up and into the conversation. You are in play, Mr. President. This pandemic, this is the kind of thing, a concern that should define and consume a presidency. But Mr. President, you will be defined by your indifference to the plan, the dire consequences, the indifference to the deaths. No plan to stop them anytime soon. No national testing and tracing strategy. People begging you to do it. Better minds around you trying to fit a way to get it in. But you liberate the states and it's all going to be fine. Worse than what he isn't doing is what he's doing instead. Lying to you about COVID's capability early on. What? What? I can't even. It was just pretentious. Uh, so this guy breaks quarantine, doesn't wear his mask, uh, stages a, a, a reunion with his family, up the, a dramatic reunion with Chris Cuomo's family. When, when he had already been seen out and about despite having the virus, he's attacking the president for, for hydrochloroquine when he himself is using quinine, which is a derivative. Uh, he, he bashes the president repeatedly while his wife is saying online that, that they're treating him for fever, fever spikes because of a full moon. I kid you not. And then he has his brother on TV and never bothers to ask his brother about all the dead people in New York uh, because of his brother's incompetence. Won't ask the hard questions of his own brother. And then it's all your fault, Mr. President. We'll hold you accountable here because I can't hold my brother accountable for his screw ups. Do you know this is the New York virus at this point? Uh, it, we now know Andrew Cuomo made all sorts of decisions that allowed the New York virus to spread all over the country, including into Florida and Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, well, so many people got infected, and then he was sending nursing home patients back to their nursing homes with the virus. And now he's blaming the nursing homes. No, no, seriously. Uh, Andrew Cuomo ordered nursing homes to accept patients who had COVID-19, whether they wanted to or not. And now he's blaming the nursing homes for complying with his order. I'm just asking Governor if it's in your power to not follow the CDC guidelines on this, if you could have actually stopped putting infected patients back into nursing homes, would that have been within your power? The, I've always followed CDC guidance, and uh, I think it makes sense. And by the way, I think the rule that you can't discriminate against the COVID patient uh, is, is right. That doesn't mean the nursing home has to accept a COVID positive patient. They conflate those two things. I understand because politically facts don't matter. Just you're making a you know, political argument. Uh, but because you can't discriminate doesn't mean you have to accept. Actually, the law is the opposite. You cannot accept a patient at a nursing home unless you can fully and adequately treat that patient. So you can't accept the COVID patient, COVID positive patient, unless you can isolate and quarantine and have the staff, unless you can do all that, you cannot accept that person. And the nursing home, the obligation is on the nursing home to say, I can't take a COVID positive person. I'm too crowded, I'm too busy, I don't have enough PPE, whatever the answer is, doesn't even matter. It's if they say I can't take the person, they can't take the person. So that's, that's how it works. Doesn't mean they discriminate against the COVID positive person. 
They just say, I can't handle the person. I can't quarantine. I don't have a big enough facility. Whatever they want to say. But that wasn't really what happened. He was very insistent that the nursing homes take back the patients. This has been well documented now in, in several outlets. Even the Atlantic now is calling out the love fest between Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo and pointing out that Chris Cuomo won't ask his brother the tough questions. And in fact, uh, we do now know that Andrew Cuomo was being advised to shut down the state sooner than he did and he couldn't make the decision. He didn't go into lockdown when his advisors told him, you know, all these people listen to the advisors. You should have listened to the advisors, Mr. President. What about Andrew Cuomo, Chris? What about your brother? You want to come on TV and pontificate? And here's the thing that actually annoys me more than any of it is that CNN uh, has this entire apparatus of Oliver Darcy, Brian Stetler, and the like, who routinely cover Fox with a critical eye of all the stuff Fox is doing, and they can't be self-reflective and turn their eye on themselves. What would they say if they were truly objective? What would they, Well, I know what they would say. Because I know more than one person at CNN, from management to anchor, who is horrified with what they're letting Chris Cuomo get away with on a regular basis, and Don Lemon, for that matter, with his commentary. They pride themselves on being the news network. They, they, they castigate Fox for having the opinion shows tonight, and that's what CNN has turned into. They're MSNBC light. That's why CNN's ratings suck so bad over the overnight shows. Chris's show has gone up with Andrew and the love fest. The, the libs love to watch the libs on TV hanging out with each other, bashing Trump and not asking hardball questions to a man who let all these senior citizens die in New York. But they've turned into opinion shows at night on on CNN, too. It's hypocrisy. And, of course, they don't want to call that out. You know, it, it really is staggering the number of people at CNN who are deeply uncomfortable with what's going on with Chris and Andrew Cuomo. It's very much like, you know, during the gun stuff after the, the shooting at the school in Florida. Uh, more than one person from CNN, and again, I've got a lot of friends there, worked there for a number of years. A lot of friends of mine at CNN were deeply upset with the imbalance of coverage at CNN, uh, that they were trending too far left. And it's very clear that Jeff Zucker, who is a progressive, has decided to progress towards MSNBC. They don't want to beat Fox. Uh, they want to beat MSNBC. They want to be the left-leaning network, uh, and yet they still continue to, to have this veneer of, of fairness. And, you know, by the way, there are great people who work at CNN who do an extraordinary job of trying to be fair in their coverage. They really do. And I'm more critical of CNN, perhaps, than the other networks because I, I, I would like to hold them to the standard they claim to hold for themselves. And they're not doing it. But have, have Chris Cuomo come on last night after the almost gleeful, we're at 100,000 deaths, folks. I do distinctly remember the president lowered the national flag to half-mast over the weekend in honor of the dead. And yet they don't want to give him credit for that. They, they, they want a tweet of some kind that they could then use against him. It's very much like remember when George Bush was president. They were desperate for him to admit a mistake. Admit any mistake, Mr. President, please, so we can run this on a regular basis. And he wouldn't do it, and it infuriated them, and they didn't really want him to admit a mistake. They wanted to have something else to attack him about. Just extraordinary uh, that these people in the media don't even, they don't want to admit they're left-wing hacks. But they are. Hello there. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So... 
I was headed to bed last night. I actually decided I would go to bed early last night because I got a long day ahead of me. And about 10.45, my phone, it doesn't go into do not disturb mode until 11. Because that's normally when I go to bed. And the phone, what on earth is happening? And of course, I'm wearing my Apple Watch, so I'm getting tapped the whole time too. My my, I have my Apple Watch set to mute, so it just taps, 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 taps. Joe Cunningham is texting me right now, and I know because my watch is tapping me on my wrist to tell me I'm getting a text message from Joe Cunningham at Red State. Hi, Joe. Uh, <laughs> but it was nuts what was happening. And so I looked, and it was my boss, and then it was a bunch of other people. And I mean, literally, have you ever seen, like, you, you see TV shows where something happens, and, and the push notifications on their phone is just bling, 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 and just, just lights up? Well, the president of the United States last night decided to retweet me. That's a first. He hadn't done it in a while. He used to do it regularly. He doesn't do it so much anymore. I wonder why. Interestingly enough, because I was very critical of him yesterday on the Joe Scarborough stuff too. But so he so he retweeted me and then he he tweeted out something else from my Twitter feed with a thank you to me for putting it up. And the crowd went wild. Um, it was it was rather interesting. Um, my goodness gracious! It, it what a, so it, the effect of this? So I had let me see. I, I think I gave the numbers wrong. I was on uh, a radio station this morning talking about it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I gave the radio. So I had two hundred eight thousand Twitter followers. Right at to like 208,100 Twitter followers. Uh, when I went to bed last night, this morning I have 213,149. Yeah. Uh, so a, a big jump in Twitter followers. And actually this morning it was higher than that. So I, I guess some of those were bots and Twitter must have wiped them out in the last couple of hours because there were about 2,000. It was over 215 this morning. Uh, now it's 213. So yeah, about 2,000, I guess, subscribed. I don't know. Maybe they went back and saw the things I've said about the president. But in any event, so it was really wild to, to have the president do this. And so the, the thing that he tweeted was about Rush Limbaugh. And, and I want to spend a little bit on this because Rush Limbaugh is, is under fire today for explaining what Donald Trump, the, Donald Trump's strategy, I guess you could say, about his um, tweets and, on Joe Scarborough. And one of those things uh, that I pointed out is in Russia's division, essentially uh, what Rush was saying is that, and I don't really agree with him, but he, he's trying to make the point that the president is not creating conspiracy theories about Joe Scarborough, as some have said. The conspiracy theories are already out there, and all the president is doing is pointing to him and saying, hey, you should look over here. He, he's essentially, he didn't use the word, Russia didn't use the word, but he was trolling Joe Scarborough. He's also distracting, trying to generate a new story that that uh, distracts from the hundred thousand uh, COVID nineteen deaths. It, it, that didn't work. The media the media ditched the Joe Scarborough stuff to seize on that, and, and he also he's had a, a number of conservative, prominent conservatives, and, and Republican leaders in Congress say, "Come on, man, stop this." Uh, but uh, the, the point Rush was making is that uh, the president was essentially trying to control the conversation by doing this. I don't think it works so well. Well, Rush Limbaugh, of course, is being attacked now by a bunch of people for daring 
to to point this out about the president. It's taken out of context for media matters. And of course, everybody seizes on the media matters stuff uh, as opposed to what actually happened. And it's amazing to me uh, now with Rush uh, being vulnerable, having cancer, the number of talk radio people who finally want to throw him under the bus. It's it's kind of gross. All right. I, I'm turning on the record button to, to placate my team. <laughs> The, the phone number here, if you want to call in, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have no idea what recipe I'm sending out today, but I'm sending a recipe out. I'm trying to figure out what recipe. I, I don't know. I cannot remember. Uh, it's just one of those things. But uh, you'll get a recipe at 1215 today uh, if you text the word recipe to 33777. I want to go back to this Rush Limbaugh stuff. So Rush Limbaugh tried to explain yesterday on his program why Donald Trump is doing what he's doing uh, with the Joe Scarborough stuff. And a lot of people read it as a defense of the president, uh, that the president was trying to to, uh, go after the moralizing people out there. And he's pointing people to conspiracies. He's not creating conspiracies and and stuff like that. Listen, uh, Rush Limbaugh got 2016 right. I did not get 2016 right. He saw something that I did not see. Uh, What amazes me are the number of people, particularly now that Rush has cancer, a lot of people are coming out and attacking Rush Limbaugh, people who were not successful in talk radio and are attacking Rush Limbaugh as a sellout. They they feel betrayed. Now, part of this is, if we're honest, a lot of people expected Rush Limbaugh as kind of the guardian of conservatism the last several decades on radio, that he would, would go after Trump or try to stop Trump. And, and Rush has never, in my years of listening to Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh has never told people how to vote. Uh, he's never said go with this candidate. Uh, his audience went with Donald Trump, and, and Rush has his audience back, and they have his back. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, there, Rush has a relationship with his audience. I remember distinctly in 2000, uh, 2000 right after 2015, when I uninvited Donald Trump from my red state gathering uh, after his Megyn Kelly comments, uh, a lot of people went nuts. That's when I really knew there was a there there with the president and his support. Uh, a lot of people were very angry with me, and I was a guest host for Rush Limbaugh at the time. And I reached out to Rush and, and just uh, he he said something nice about me on the radio, and I just reached out and said thanks for the kind words. About the only ones I'm getting these days. And he he emailed me back. He's been a great mentor of yours. I frankly I wouldn't be in talk radio but for Rush. Uh, he really encouraged me to do it. Uh, in fact, I was was not going to, and and he basically told me I was an idiot if I didn't. I should do it, so I did, and wound up becoming a guest host for him. And Rush told me, always have a relationship with your audience. Uh, you, you and your audience can give each other room to disagree so long as you and your audience are friends. And there are a lot of people who disagreed with Rush and uh, can show him no grace because they disagree with him now about the Trump stuff. And it's just easy. This is Rush being Rush. I, I don't think the Rush of today is the Rush is is a different Rush Limbaugh of ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. Rush has a great relationship with his audience, and, and some people fell away. And you know, I find that here with me now in doing radio, that there are people who I have uh, had cordial, friendly relationships with in the past who suddenly hate my guts uh, because I on radio take a position that they don't have. And and more than one time, I, I in all honesty, I have more than once lost a friend, someone who actually was a friend, 
uh, in doing radio because I said something on radio that directly contradicted their position and they interpreted it as me talking to them through the radio insultingly and that wasn't my intention at all but they took it that way because they were friends and and they were were really really angry and haven't been friends since and it's just it, it's striking in in that very personal medium of radio how those relationships rise and fall but what what is striking to me more than anything are the number of people who are failed talk radio show hosts. Now, not all, listen, there are some very successful people out there who have been radio show hosts who are critical of Rush Limbaugh and, and re- criticize Rush all you want. I, I don't think he cares. I don't think he pays attention to it. And, and so I'm not talking about those people. I, like, for example, a, a, a guy who used to be on, on radio up north texted me last night, said, were you talking about me in this tweet? I said, no, I actually think you were very successful. He's on radio for 20 years and retired. But there are others who, I, I mean, I've now been in radio for uh, a decade. Uh, there are people who were on radio five, six years, seven years. They, they floated from job to job, station to station. They were never able to hold an audience. And ultimately, they decided not to support the president in 2016. And they, they lost their jobs. They lost their audience. They walked away and they blamed their audience. And all of these guys, the common thread is that they can never accept they weren't good. It's that it's their audience was too dumb or, or too unappreciative or, or you name it. And it's just been very interesting to watch uh, these people go after Rush Limbaugh. Here's the thing in, in, in doing radio. Uh, I fell into radio by accident. I've told the story plenty of times. I'll tell it again for new listeners. I fell into radio by accident. I, I, I was a lawyer in Macon, Georgia. And got on CNN, left my law practice, started redstate.com with some friends. They actually started it and brought me on. And I got invited to fill in for a guy on the radio in Macon one day. It turns out he had been arrested in a drug raid. And that day turned into a week, and that week turned into three months doing 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., the worst time slot. I am not a morning person, and doing radio from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. was sheer misery because then I had a full-day job with Red State, and I was on CNN. So I was driving up to Atlanta for TV. I could come home 10, 11 o'clock at night. I have to get up at 4 a.m. to do show prep. It was miserable, but I did it for three months. Always had wanted to try to try my hand at radio, and I, and I really liked it. Had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I got paid in an expired gift certificate to Outback Steakhouse. And uh, the only reason I know it was expired is because I took my wife to Outback uh, to celebrate having finished my stint of free three months on radio with this gift certificate and wound up having to buy dinner. (laughs) But nonetheless, it was great. And and in in those three months, Rush was deeply encouraging. Uh, So was Sean Hannity, for that matter. And then uh, Herman Cain decided to run for president. And WSB in Atlanta needed someone to take his spot. And they had heard me on the radio. They assumed it was my show. And they hired me. And I, literally, I was just doing it because the guy had gotten arrested. I had no experience in radio whatsoever. And Rush was a, a genuine mentor to me. And, and the thing that he emphasized over and over again is build a relationship with your audience. Earn the trust of your audience. And so when 2016 comes around, 2015, 2016, and, and I part ways with my audience on on Donald Trump, there are people in, in the Atlanta market where I do the evening news who to this day passionately hate my guts because I did not support the president in 2016. And I will forever be never Trump for them. Even though the president calls me at home, he tweets me, uh, thanks me on Twitter. Never, never enough. Uh, no, no grace uh, can, cannot be forgiven. And, and that's fine. Uh, that, that really is more a reflection of them than me. Uh, 
But I was able to part ways with my audience on the issue of Donald Trump in 2016 and not only hold my audience, but grow my audience over time because I was able to build a relationship with the audience and, and we found common ground on other things, even if we disagreed on politics and, and that should be possible. And I think to some degree still is. And so a lot of these guys I see that are attacking rush on a regular basis who didn't make it in talk radio. They never learned that lesson of, of be relatable to your audience in some way, ha have a relationship with your audience. All they can do is attack, 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 attack. And I, it's just, it, it's, it's striking to me to blame the audience. You never blame the audience. If you and the audience don't relate to each other, it's not that your audience is dumb. It's that you failed in some way to find a connection with your audience. And they did. And now they fixate on Rush Limbaugh. And, and their view is that Rush Limbaugh must have sold out. He, he had to support Trump so he wouldn't lose everything. And they didn't support Trump, and they lost everything because of it. And it's the audience's fault, and Rush sold out. He was hijacked by his audience, and that is bull malarkey. And I can tell you this as someone who did not support the president in 2016 and made my audience really angry. And not only did they not leave me, but I grew the audience. And if nothing else, uh, with with my audience and my evening show, and I hope now here with this show, you understand that you and I may disagree, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I, I'm not going to tell you what I think you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what I think. And that is a lesson I learned from Rush Limbaugh. So don't tell me he sold out. Uh, it, it is the, the number of failed talk show hosts who want to pile on top of Rush because they couldn't make it in the business and somehow they blame him is ridiculous. There is a level of jealousy. Uh, that is just unflattering in, in a number of these people uh, and, and a contempt for you. And that contempt for you, I think, ultimately comes out on radio. Listen, y'all all know I think people are stupid. I mean, you guys are great, but let's just be honest. In general, people are stupid. And, and you all know where I stand on these issues. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. Um, and, <laughs> and some of these people can't. It's just, it's crazy. And, and they, they bitterly hate the president. Listen, I don't care for the president. The president's not my hero. I, I, I drove past a house the other day, and th this this house has Trump 2020 signs in the yard and literally has a flagpole with a Donald Trump flag on it. There's, there's not an American flag. It was a Trump flag, and I don't get it. I just, I don't get it. I didn't do that with George W. Bush. I, I, I my, my parents didn't do that with Ronald Reagan. Uh, I, I wouldn't do that with any politician, certainly not Donald Trump. Uh, I, I wish we had a president who could be a role model for my kids, and he certainly can't. But given the choice between a man who isn't out to get me and an entire political party that is, I, I think I'll go with the man who's not out to get me when it comes to 2020. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm critical of the president. And listen, th I, this is not me telling you some talking on the one side of my mouth with you and talking on the other side of my mouth with someone else. I've told the president this to his face. I, I've said, listen, you, you're, you're not really my cup of tea. I, I wish you would do things differently. Uh, I don't view you as a role model for my kids. But I know you're out, not out to get me. You've given me good tax cuts and deregulation. You've you've done a great job cleaning up the Obama foreign policy. Uh, I think you're good on the border issues that, that uh, face the country. I think we do need to build a wall. You've had great judicial picks. So, yeah, I'm, I'm for you in 2020. And he and I can agree to disagree on certain things. Uh, I, I'm also, you know, it, it's not just the people who they, they hate the president and they feel like Limbaugh sold out or I sold out or something. It's also, there's, it's really interesting to me, the number of people who don't believe they can be critical of the president.
And I, I listen, maybe I can't. Maybe I, I, I could be a much more successful talk radio show host than I am uh, if I was trying to hump his leg every day. Like, like some of these people I see, it's just embarrassing to me. Have you no self-worth? I mean, seriously, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, these people who want to take their underwear off and throw it at the president are kind of disgusting. A lot of them are evangelical leaders, which makes it even more appalling. I mean, I'm with the guy in 2020, but I know what I'm getting. It, it's like they have no idea, and, and then some of them, it's just really just just bizarre, the transactional relationship between some of these evangelical leaders. In fact, this is the what's so, is so ironic is this um, video that the president linked to last night where he was thanking me for supporting him, and he was retweeting a, a, an interview I did, ex-never-Trump Eric Erickson on the GOP elite and the problem, and part of what I was saying in the interview that the president leaked to is that it's really one of the bizarre aspects of the Trump era is you'll go into a green room at Fox or CNN or wherever, you'll be surrounded with people who who are purported mostly at Fox, uh, purportedly the president's supporters. These people hate his guts. I mean, I, I have I've walked through a Safeway grocery store one time with a guy who had been on Fox saying really flattering things about the president, and then was telling me in the grocery store that he was an evil blankety blank Forrest Gump. That's how he described the president to me. But on TV, he's trying to hump the president's leg. It's bizarre. And at least be honest. Um, and in both sides, and then part of what I said in this interview is is I've got a real concern as someone who takes my faith seriously. Some of these evangelical leaders who want to tell you all these great things we're getting from the Trump administration, and, and I, I just I, I'm I'm left looking. Do you care about the man's soul? Because I hear all the time this uh, oh that the. We're getting this from the president. The president's putting these judges on. The, the president's doing this pro-life agenda. The president's doing. What about his soul? Because I, I, I honestly don't think that if you're someone of faith. Now this is where I may make some of you mad. I, I, I genuinely don't think that if you're someone of faith, you should be circulating conspiracy theories online accusing an innocent man of murder. I don't think you should be doing that. Now, now you're, you're listening right now. You say, well, he's not really one of them. Okay, he's not. But these evangelical leaders want to attest to his faith and his humility and, and, and the like. And I, 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 this is not an issue. Don't, don't misunderstand me. This is not a criticism of the president at all. This is not a criticism of the president. I, I really do think that there are some evangelical leaders out there who are way more interested in having a transactional relationship with the president and what they can get from him, and, and they don't really care about a soul. And I actually do care about the president's soul. Uh, it, it pains me to think we may get all sorts of good things from this president and he go to hell. That actually bothers me. And I, I, I actually get the sense from some of these people that they just don't care. And I think you should be more care. You should be more concerned with where the president spends eternity than what you get off the table of leadership. And it's particularly if you're an evangelical leader. And, and there's just this disconnect there. And that that's part of what I was saying in this interview. I, I don't I don't blame any Christian for supporting the president in 2016. Uh, when you're against Hillary Clinton, of, of course I, I don't blame you. I, I I couldn't bring myself to do it. But but I understood if he really did keep his word, you get better judges. I really didn't believe he'd do it, but he did. I was wrong, and I'm perfectly willing to say that. Uh, but even now, you've got these people who are like, hey, we're going to get this from the president, this from the president, this from the president. What about the president's soul? When, when he's out there doing this on social media, it suggests there's there's still a, a soul problem with the president. Uh, and, 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 you know, God's will be done. 
being someone who believes in predestination, may, maybe he's not among the elect, but I mean, have, have you really tried? And I just don't know that some of them have and need a lot more prayer for the president from some of these evangelical leaders and a lot less gimme, gimme, gimme from them. All right. I get to do something uh, I've, I've always wanted to do. Because uh, when I was growing up, Danger Mouse was a great favorite cartoon of mine when I grew up in Dubai and we got all the great British shows. And so I get to say, London, we're going to go to Michael. How are you? Hi there, Eric. Thank you for taking my call. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm great. What's going on? Well, first off, I completely agree with what you're saying about President Trump. It's obviously a bit shocking for uh someone with more British sensibilities to hear some things coming out of his mouth. And I really just hope the Lord has pity for him in the end, because I I am truly worried for his soul, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I just, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I just want to say I'm really glad I've discovered your show. There's not really a lot of uh, radio shows here for you know, uh, Christians. And it's just great to see what uh, Francis from Pee Wee Herman would look like as a reactionary fearmonger. <laughs> yep. Uh, so you, we we knew that we had had an, an issue with a possible troll and, and he's watching on Facebook Live. And so a lot of times what they do is, but man, I, I, I had to take the call because I had to say London. Um, so what happened was we knew that we got this call. The guy literally was calling from London and I just, I, we wanted to take the call, but there was a, it's a Facebook live thing. And we just, when we get suspect calls, we don't take Facebook live. So it kind of deprives them of any sort of pleasure that they would want to get to, to troll the show. But it was worth taking a call from London just to have a British troll who professes Christianity and then wants to troll people. Um, man. What a, what a life you have in London. To, of course, uh, everybody in London is still quarantined and the United States is getting back to business. So I guess you would be a little bitter there. Now, we must move on to SpaceX. SpaceX, you know, if you say that fast, it sounds like you're talking about something else, doesn't it? Uh, I wonder if that was part of the Elon Musk. Maybe he, he may, I don't, I don't know. Elon Musk is an odd guy. So... Elon Musk has his SpaceX, and they were going to launch yesterday, send Americans back into space from American soil. I'm rather proud of the private-public partnership in this. Um, I, I actually really am. I, I, think it was, I think it's a good thing. I think it is a, a worthy endeavor to see the American NASA program, which has for so long kind of not really liked public-private partnerships. Uh, they, they wanted everything to be done in-house, for better or for worse, and cost overruns and the like, to go out to the private sector and be more efficient in launching rockets into space. And so they did. And we were going to have that launch yesterday, but this tropical storm that's gone over the eastern seaboard, 14 inches of rain in Florida yesterday, from the outer bands of this thing, and it's actually headed into South Carolina. Uh, it, it's in the Carolinas today, and they um, they had to cancel the launch. And we were actually, so on my evening show, we were going to cover it live, and, of course, the whole thing got to, like, the last 20 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, and the lightning was so bad they decided not to do it. They're going to try again on Saturday. The president went down to Florida for this. He would have been the first president since Bill Clinton to actually be at the Kennedy Space Center. I didn't realize George W. Bush did not go there to see anything like that. Uh, just just Clinton. Clinton was the last guy to go to Kennedy to see an American into space. And I got to tell you, I'm 
So, all right, this this is kind of funny. I have a friend, and his wife is way more hardcore conservative than he is. And she has never allowed their children to play with trains. Like model trains, toy trains, won't let the kids play with toy trains. And the reason she won't, I, I find very endearing and funny, <laughs> is because there is this element within the conservative movement that is anti-government, anti-subsidy, except when it comes to trains. Uh, Paul Weirich, uh, for years, uh, led, led the Weirich Group, was one of the founders of the Heritage Foundation, uh, passed away a number of years ago. And um, it, what was so fascinating is that uh, Weirich loved trains and was okay to a degree with government subsidization of passenger railroad. And there's this element within the so she refused to let her kids play with trains because she didn't want that. And, and I suspect there are lots of lots of elements of conservatives who say, "Yeah, the space." It's a waste of money. I actually don't think it is. I actually think there's something cool and 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 for the sake of national pride, getting us focused and united about going into space, but also the amount of technological innovation we get out of the program that ultimately makes it into the private sector, I think, uh, makes the space program really worthwhile. And it's great to see us resuming it in some degree. It's me. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The full number is... What is the phone number? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Today is Troll Thursday, apparently. A bunch of people calling in. I guess enraged at the president um, retweeted me last night uh, and and saying something nice about me. We got all these uh, Twitter trolls now calling in, uh, trying to overwhelm the phone lines. Uh, So, you know, we, we do understand how this works around here particularly because the, what, what they do is they watch the Facebook live stream and they're trying to get a video recording of it. And all you do is, is you deprive them of the moment. Um, it's just, wow. Uh, it, children, children, children. Um, it, it's it's kind of kind of funny to actually watch the temper tantrums happen. Okay. Now, we must move on. The president wants to regulate social media. Uh, He's upset with Twitter. Uh, You know, I got to give credit where it's due to Mark Zuckerberg last night, went on Fox News and said it it should not be a private corporation uh, regulating uh, what what is and is not truth, which is what Twitter wants to do. Uh, it, it it um, it, It was good of... Zuckerberg to get out there. And of course, Zuckerberg wanted to get out there because of what Twitter is doing. Now, I got to read you this piece, uh, Maggie Haberman from, from the New York Times. I, I I love the way that the New York Times tries to, to catch this because no one actually knows what this executive order is going to be. Let, let me give you the play-by-play. So the other day, Twitter decided to fact check the president on mail-in ballots and said there was never proof of any kind of any level of fraud or anything like that. Uh, This came shortly before the Justice Department indicted a mail worker for trying to commit fraud with with absentee ballots. Uh, So the fact check was proven wrong on its face, uh, and yet Twitter decided to leave it up there. And uh, in in leaving it up there, it turns out that the guy who's in charge of site integrity and oversees the fact checkers turns out to be a left wing hack who has compared uh, Kelly and Conway to the Nazis, has has said that people who vote for the president are racist. Uh, And actually, my personal favorite is called Mitch McConnell a bag of farts. I I actually like that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that's hilarious. But nonetheless, that's who Twitter has in charge of this sort of stuff. And and so uh, people on the right pointed out that there's a left-wing partisan hack who hates Trump voters in charge of doing all of this stuff. And then the president announced he was going to impose an executive order regulating uh, social media companies. In particular, it is, what is it, Section 230 of the Communications Act of, um, oh, what is it? Uh, Section 230, yeah, the Communications Decency Act. I will explain it. You will need to know this. You will be smarter than everyone in your circle of friends if you know what Section 230 does. But here first, let, let, me, let me read you part of this. I, I love the caveats because, again, last night the president's team announced there would be an executive order coming on social media. They didn't say what it would do, and so there's all sorts of media speculation. The Trump administration is preparing an executive order intended to curtail the legal protections that shield social media companies from liability for what gets posted on their online platforms, two senior administration officials said early Thursday. Such an order, which officials said was still being drafted and was subject to change, would make it easier for federal regulators to argue that companies like Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter are suppressing free speech when they move to suspend users or delete posts, among other examples. Now, the president actually doesn't have any authority to do this. Uh, he doesn't have direct control over the FCC, so he can't make a Jeep Pie do something like this. A Jeep Pie is on the record opposed to doing stuff like this. And also, these are private companies. Now, it, what you have to do is become like a progressive and argue that Twitter is somehow a, a utility company. And as a result, can be regulated by the government in a, in a different way. It's not a utility company. You don't have to use Twitter. Your life would actually be better off if you didn't use Twitter. I kind of resent like hell these days that I got to use Twitter. Uh, it's part of the business. You're, it, it's amazing these days if you're publishing a book or you're, you're growing your platform, like growing this radio show. They want to know how many, how many social media followers do you have? Well, thanks to the president, I got about 215,000 today, a, a, a big jump from yesterday. Um, but nonetheless... I'm also, I got a blue check mark on Instagram. My kids are impressed with that one. They're, they're not impressed with anything in my life except a blue check mark on Instagram uh, where you should follow me. But uh, nonetheless, up, I, I hear a motorcycle. It be, I believe my wife is leaving the compound. Yep, there she goes off on her motorcycle. Okay, now, <laughs> um, so the, the president wants to crack down on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Now, what does this mean? Okay. So section 230 if you if you have a blog let, let me let me put it in your level you have a blog and your blog has a comment section and someone comes onto your comment section and makes disparaging statements about someone else uh, untrue things says for example that uh they murdered an intern in their office hmm well that person can't sue you for what some troll commented on your website. They can't sue you. You have uh, liability protection for someone putting something on your site that is not true. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, gives immunity to you as someone who has a comment section on your blog now, there are certain things that can happen. Uh, you can be requested to provide information as to who that commenter is so that uh, the, the person can sue that commenter for slandering them, but you yourself cannot be sued. Now, if you go in and you take out comments like that, 
Uh, you also are protected from people coming and say, well, you didn't take out this comment. Well, there are so many comments. You've got broad protections. There, there are some exceptions to the rule. For example, uh, if you are actively engaged in the moderation of your comments in a way that would lead a reasonable person to presume you should have caught this sort of stuff, there are some, some liability issues there. But by and large, you are protected. Now, what is the, the, the side benefit of that protection? Well, let's now expand out from you and your blog where you're not going to be sued if someone comes in. I, I mean, you could actually see a situation where someone wanted to come in and leave slanderous information on your website hoping that you yourself get sued. But now let's expand this to Facebook and Twitter where there are hundreds of millions of people and millions of people posting every second of the day. Facebook and Twitter can't keep up with millions of people all posting every second of the day. There aren't enough people in the world to read all the comments to vet them out. And so they're given immunity just like you are with your blog. And it allows Twitter and Facebook and YouTube's comment sections and, and YouTube videos and Google uh, and Google's blog hosting service. It allows them to exist and function. They would not really be able to exist if they didn't have this protection under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. If two, Section 230 went away, they would fold up and die. Uh, that, that's why they're fighting. So Josh, Josh Howley from Missouri is concerned and wants to essentially put a cap on uh, the ability to use Section 230, wants to restrict their ability to hide behind Section 230 when it comes to deleting users and things like that. Uh, and I, I tend to, to be opposed to stuff like that. Because I don't think the government should be regulating these companies. We should allow them to thrive. I, I think as much as I hate Twitter overall, these sorts of services actually do perform some level of good in, in helping people learn. I mean, think of all the people on – think of all the reporters out there we would still think were objective if we didn't have access to their Twitter feeds to see what partisan hacks they were. There, there are, is some use in Twitter. But the president wants to do this, and here's what's going to happen. Um, the, the, the president will get a lot of praise from his supporters for taking bold action. A court will enjoin the order, whatever it is, and ultimately nothing will happen. But the president will get praise from his supporters for having taken action to protect them. And he'll get criticism from the left. Uh, I think it was very interesting of Zuckerberg to go on TV last night and uh, essentially make the case that his company should not be an arbiter of facts. And, you know, I got to say, I, I think that um, – I think – Zuckerberg and Facebook get a bad rap even from conservatives, uh, and it's not that they're sin-free. They, they've done plenty of things that I myself have disagreed with, including this uh, panel of experts they're going to have to regulate their content, which I am deeply skeptical of. But concurrent to all of that, they're not the same. As, Facebook does not operate in the same way that Twitter operates. Twitter, increasingly we know, and it is beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Twitter is deeply hostile to conservatives. Twitter is deeply, deeply biased against conservatives. We see that in how Twitter... Uh, goes after conservatives in ways it doesn't go after progressives for the same thing. We see that in how the site integrity officer of Twitter is is smearing um, conservatives and smearing the president's supporters. We don't see that with Twitter. You don't see Mark Zuckerberg 
and and the prominent people on Mark Zuckerberg's team out there attacking conservatives. Now, the problem with, with Zuckerberg and Facebook is they have Sheryl Sandberg, who very much is of the left, and that draws lots of concerns from people on the right. Now, but I've also been told fairly reliably, but but whatever you think of her biases, she's also a smart political operator. And so she can navigate ways in, in ways that, that Twitter isn't. Now, I, I want to play this comment from Josh Hawley, uh, who really does want to regulate the tech companies from the right. He's got legit concerns, uh, and he's got real concerns about Google in on the act. Because, you know, yesterday it turned out Google has been deleting comments critical of China. Well, a lot of censorship, a lot of censorship directed at speech, apparently, that uh, the big tech doesn't like. But I want to know, why is it? And it's not just the censorship in China, by the way, Steve. They're censoring Americans. Google's YouTube is censoring Americans who are criticizing the Chinese Communist Party, taking their comments down. Why? I mean, what is going on here? And now, as you say, Twitter is censoring the president of the United States. Here's the bottom line on this. Big tech gets a huge handout from the federal government. They get this special immunity, this special immunity from suits and from liability that's worth billions of dollars to them every year. Why are they getting subsidized by federal taxpayers to censor conservatives, to censor people critical of China? I am perplexed with the Google situation because you know Google has been trying to get back into China. Google would very much like to be in China. And Google wanted to start a web browser in China and, and is now suddenly, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do this. We, we, we don't want to make, make nice with the Chinese. And yet, so here's the thing. The, um, the Chinese government has had propaganda masters going into YouTube since October of last year uh, using uh, a, a glitch in the algorithm in Google to delete comments, have Google's algorithm automatically delete comments critical of the Chinese government. And Google has known about it since October of last year and refused to act on it until two days ago when it became a major story because some prominent Americans with blue check marks on Twitter and large followers said, hey, this is happening to me too. It wasn't just Chinese dissidents. And Google was okay when it was just the Chinese dissidents. They weren't doing anything about it. It was when it got got a lot of media attention. You know, this is very much like, uh, honestly, maybe this is a bad comparison and I apologize in advance if you're you're offended, but I'm going to try this one out on you. The Ahmed Arbery situation down in Brunswick, Georgia, should not have required media outrage to get justice. They should have done the right thing to begin with. They, they, they didn't need to have a media spectacle to cause justice to be done. And it's sad that you have to go to the media and have media generated outrage in order to get action taken. Chinese dissidents who are persecuted by a Chinese government who go online to post comments critical of the Chinese should not have to wait for prominent people with blue check marks on Twitter to share their outrage before they get justice from an American corporation that prides itself in free speech.
You should not in either of these cases have to wait for there to be media outrage. You should not wait for there to have to be someone more powerful than you to be outraged to get justice. And increasingly, that's what we're finding in society, in, in American society, is you got to wait for the prominent person to be outraged before you can get justice. And that's not fair. And all we should all be bothered by that, actually. Every single person, right, left, and center, should be outraged by the fact that you must wait for a more prominent person than yourself to be outraged in order for you to get justice. And whether it's with law enforcement in, in South Georgia or whether it's with a private corporation when the Chinese communists are uh, tweaking their algorithm, taking advantage of their algorithm to delete comments critical of, of a country that runs concentration camps, we should all be bothered by our reliance on not just the algorithm but the outrage mob because it feeds further outrage mobs, not necessarily legitimate ones when we get to that point. You can call in if you would like to be on the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Unless you're one of the, so we, we've had this guy, he, he, he has called in all morning long demanding to be on, demanding to be on. We had the one London troll. Uh, and, and then this other guy trying to be on, <laughs> and it's like they 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 wanted to get me on camera or something and, and use my Facebook live feed. <laughs> and what you do is you turn off the Facebook live feed when you take the person that that that's the troll, and and suddenly you deprive them. Of, well, they're livid, and so this one guy has been calling back all morning long. Uh, demanding, demanding that I put it in, get your own show. You apparently ha have one on, on, on YouTube or some such. Go, go get your own show. <laughs> oh, these people, my goodness gracious. Now, what am I missing here? There, there were, there were other things that I intended to talk about. I know one of the things that we need to talk about. And, and seriously, 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 move, move on from the hijinks to something serious here. Uh, we need to talk about what happened with George Floyd. There were riots last night in Minnesota over what happened. The president has called for the Justice Department to investigate. I, I don't know if you've seen the video of the man. He He's on the ground. The police officer has his, his knee over the guy's neck. The guy is saying he can't breathe, and he dies. He dies. And... I got to tell you, so I've, I've, I've got a number of friends of mine, particularly in the evangelical community, who are like, ah, oh, maybe maybe white privilege and and maybe I'm culpable because I, I maybe I benefit from this in society. You don't know. You're not to blame. Uh, th th we, I, I think we, we head in very dangerous territory when we decide we are culpable for other people's sins. When you're when you're in Texas and something like this happens in Minnesota and, and you feel a level of guilt, uh, what you may need to feel not guilt but maybe a level of shame that this happens in in our American society. But I do think that for conservatives who don't want to go down the road of white privilege, and I am one of them, I, I think uh, that this whole critical race theory and the whole idea of, of of white privilege and stuff. No, there's no reason to go down that road to make you feel guilty about things over which you have no control. I do think that we do need to be mindful of the fact that black citizens in this country are oftentimes treated differently 
uh, by law enforcement and others. And whether you want to attribute that to white privilege or latent racism or something else, it's just a fact. Uh, I have a friend of mine who is black, and when we go somewhere, I drive because the odds are we're going to get pulled over if he drives. There is a black pastor in Atlanta who, what is it, uh, Leon's Crump, I believe, and his wife, they were driving through Texas and got pulled over, and he was held at gunpoint while an officer checked on his wife to make sure she was okay and wasn't being held against her will. They were married. I mean, these stories are out there, and I don't think you should turn a blind eye to them, and I don't think law enforcement should turn a blind eye to them as well. And there are officers who give law enforcement a, a, a bad name, and, and here's the thing you got to be mindful of too is that there are a lot of people who want to paint with a broad brush on both sides of this, that all law enforcement is bad because of what these members of law enforcement did, and that's not true. But it is also true that there are a lot of people out there who treat uh, black and Hispanic Americans differently from you and me as white people. And we should be mindful of that as well. Uh, there, 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 there should, there's no harm in acknowledging the truth of the matter. And I think when you can acknowledge the truth, then you can recognize we got to do something about it. And, and I think the way we do something about it is not collectively, but individually. We all have to change behavior. Uh, having society do this is only going to make it worse and build resentment. But you need to raise up your children to actually live in a society where we all Americans are all treated equally. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, I, I, I got to let me address real quick uh, voting by mail. You know, the secretary of state here wants you to return your absentee ballot over a million people. Uh, need their absentee ballots to be returned. You know, I ultimately decided that I am going to um, probably go vote in person. And here in Bibb County, where I am, I'm probably going to have to get the Democratic ballot. I go back and forth on this. I don't really want to get a Democratic ballot, but the only race that matters in my area is the district attorney's race. And it's kind of funny. So the so our local DA uh, cracked down on a bunch of illicit activities that were happening in some convenience stores in town. And so the convenience store owners have all pulled their money to fund a challenger to him. Uh, which is absurd when you think about it. So he, there was illegal activity going on. He cracked down on it. So now these people have raised money to find an opponent. Well, so it's the only race that matters, and you got to vote in the Democratic primary to to, to make a difference. Um, and it's just it, it's kind of funny. The other issue is there's a racial dynamic here, and that the DA is white in Bibb County uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, the predominant voters will be black voters, and a lot of them will vote for a black candidate over him. Uh, because he's not black, which is just, it's, it's an odd dynamic. And uh, so he's depending on, I I think some Republican crossovers to try to help him. And, and, you know, he's been a good DA. He's, he's very much to the left of me. uh, And, uh, but he's been a good law and order DA for, for the, the, he just, he's done nothing to, it's kind of like the Charlie Bethel situation on the Supreme court here in Georgia. Uh, Charlie Bethel is an incumbent uh, justice on the Georgia Supreme court. He's being challenged by Beth Beskin 
He's done nothing to be removed from office. He's actually a very good justice. He was on the Court of Appeals, got elevated to the Supreme Court. He's been a very good justice. And there's no reason, whether you like Beth Beskin or not, there's no reason to throw Charlie Bethel out of office. Uh, I, I, I will vote for him. Now, that's a nonpartisan race. But, yeah, this DA race in, in Bibb County, I'm going to have to get a Democratic ballot, I guess, and, and vote. But at least then I can, like, vote for Bernie Sanders or something and try to screw up the Democratic primary. Not that there will be enough people joining me in doing that. Nonetheless, um, but uh, there are a million absentee ballots outstanding in Georgia. I never actually filled out the form to request mine or my wife's. Um, and the election is June 9th. There are people, I have talked to some people in the Gwinnett County and the Fulton County area who actually got their absentee envelopes, got the envelopes from the boards of election, no ballots inside. Uh, this is happening. They, they have a backlog. They are scrambling. So many people have requested absentee ballots in those counties. They are scrambling to get the ballots out. Now, the president has gone off on a riff about um, voting by mail. And Kellyanne Conway mentioned this a little bit with me yesterday. And then she also was standing on the White House lawn yesterday and had more to say on it after she got off the phone with me. We are very concerned about we're very concerned about the constitutional right to exercise your franchise and vote one vote, one person. And I know that you got a lot of people saying, we're looking at the data and the science, the data and the science. Unless it's 86 and sunny, then they're all out on the boardwalk and the beach. And the governors just sort of say, oh, wow. So I think people need to be honest and, and consistent here. But whether it is, whether it is a Nancy Pelosi trying to have proxy voting become institutionalized in the House so that the folks who should be here working won't even come back to work. They'll be home. And it's not like they're with their constituents, Joe. Their constituents are locked down. <laughs> they made it that way. So that's very concerning. Mail, mail-in balloting as the main way to vote would be very concerning because you see the polls, you see the economic indicators. People want this country to open up. You now have 50 governors have reopening plans. You now see the consumer confidence. The stock market yesterday was because of the confidence in the market that states are reopening, that people are going back to their places of worship, their places of work, their places of learning, their places of recreation. So why would we go the opposite way five, five and a half months from now, over five months from now, we're so sure that people are going to need to cast their ballot by mail. The president made two things very clear in the Rose Garden yesterday I'll repeat on his behalf. Number one, of course you'll get an absentee ballot if you need one, if you're infirm, if you're, if you're sick, if you're out of state, like he'll be, uh, and he can't go vote in person in Florida. If there is some reason for you to an absentee ballot, you can proffer that by mail, as many people do. Our military vote that way, for example, many of them. But that's different from institutionalizing mail-in balloting and pretending, pretending that somehow that is the only safe way that people can exercise their franchise. I'm not a fan of mail-in ballots. Um, Let me say something that is controversial on the right. I was an elections lawyer for six years and absentee ballot, mail-in ballot fraud happens. But I am unaware of any situation anywhere where it would happen to such an extent as to shift an election. In the same way, let me say something that's controversial on the left. I am unaware of any effort to actually suppress the vote that has ever worked. 
There have certainly been attempts, and there are certainly idiots who have fallen for it, but not enough to matter. Uh, it is not the, the left would have you believe that there is an organized pattern on the right of trying to suppress people from voting, and it's simply not true. And the right would tell you the same about voter fraud and, and mail-in. And by the way, this is, if we're honest about it, uh, one of the ways Democrats want to overcome voter ID. They, they, they don't like uh, that so many people, so many states have embraced voter ID, so they're trying to play up the fear of the pandemic to get mail-in balloting, which which undermines voter ID. How are you Are you going to have to photocopy your ballot, your, your absentee or your driver's license? Well, then that... Most people don't have a photocopy, so therefore we'll get a judge to throw it out and say it's it's too burdensome. Let, let's let's be clear with what's happening uh, in this mail-in. But here's the thing. Uh, he, I don't support mail-in balloting in its philosophical. I think we should make Election Day a national holiday, and the federal government should help the states fund even more precincts so that there aren't big lines so that more people can go vote, and we should all vote on Election Day. We should make it far harder for people to vote and do so in a way that requires them to all vote on the same day as the founders of this country intended on the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November. I do not like mail-in ballots. I think mail-in ballots cheapen democracy, but there's something else there and it gets to what Kellyanne Conway was talking about. Do you know what ballot harvesting is? Let me step back for a moment. It is against the law in most states. It is against the law in Georgia. I, I know firsthand because I got actually a, a phone call from the Secretary of State's office a couple of years ago uh, when I had done this. It is against the law in Georgia to take a picture of your ballot in a voter location. You are not allowed to publicly display your vote. Now you're wondering how on earth can this be constitutional? It's my vote. I should be able to show people. But there's a problem. Rewind the clock to Jim Crow. Back then, uh, you had uh, powerful white people who would uh, load up black voters and take them to the polls and demand that they voted in particular ways. And, and this happened all over the South. Happened in Georgia, happened in Louisiana, happened in Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, you name it. They would load up black voters and they would take them to the polls and they would demand that they voted a particular way. They would stand there and watch them. Well, ultimately, they, they, if they couldn't watch them when laws began to change and the federal government began to crack down, they would want proof. And so laws were passed that you're not allowed to display your ballot to other people. And that includes photographing your ballot, and it is for your own protection. Uh, you do not want to be put in a situation where uh, someone demands you vote for someone, and they want to see a picture of your ballot to prove it. Well, when you do vote by mail, what's to stop a union activist from coming to your house and overseeing your vote to make sure you vote the right way? What, what What's to happen with that? Would you like it, if you're a minority voter, would you have liked it in the Jim Crow days for a white person to come to your house and, and give you your absentee ballot and stand over you and make sure you voted the right way? This gets into ballot harvesting, where some states, particularly progressive states, will advertise a list of the people with outstanding absentee ballots. 
And then union activists will show up at those people's houses and say, hey, we're here from the union and we will gladly take your ballot. Do you need our help to fill it out? Ballot harvesting. They're going door to door and it can be an intimidating thing for people. Hey, the union is here to collect my ballot. What Planned Parenthood is here to collect my ballot? If if they don't think I voted the right, will my ballot get there? Will it get there? Will they accidentally discard the ballot? What will happen? Will it accidentally fly out the window? We got all sorts of problems when we do this. This is one of the reasons I'm opposed to mail-in balloting. Uh, if you're if you're not going to prohibit ballot harvesting, you shouldn't have mail-in ballots. And a lot of these progressive states won't actually prohibit ballot harvesting. In fact, some of them encourage ballot harvesting. And you notice the media is not talking about that with mail-in ballots. Look at the outrage in Texas. So there's all sorts of outrage about the Texas Supreme Court saying that um, a, a and a lack of immunity to COVID-19 is not a physical disability uh, that is worthy of requiring people to vote by mail. Now, Texas has a law. Georgia used to have this law in Georgia. You used to have to be over 65 or certify you were out of town or certify you were, you were convalescent or, or had a pre-existing uh, illness or injury making it impossible for you to vote in person requiring you to have an absentee ballot. And Texas, we don't do that in Georgia now. And now anybody can request an absentee ballot in Georgia, which is garbage, by the way. We shouldn't do that. Um, we should make people show up on Election Day. But Texas makes people show up on Election Day. You have to have a reason if you want an absentee ballot in Texas. And so uh, progressive voters sued and went to the Georgia or Texas Supreme Court saying, hey, uh, we don't have immunity to COVID-19. That should be a pre-existing condition. And the Texas Supreme Court said that's not really what the law means there with pre-existing condition based on what the definition of pre-existing condition is. A, a lack of immunity to a virus doesn't qualify. And now they're, I can't believe the Texas Supreme Court are just trying to help the Republican. No, y'all, listen, when you don't get your outcome in court, it doesn't mean that the court is biased against you. It means the court is biased towards the law in many cases. These were not progressive activists in, in, in all the court, and they weren't really conservative activists. They The law in Texas defines what a pre-existing condition is that allows you to get an absentee ballot. And not having immunity to a ballot or not having immunity to a virus is not a reason to get a ballot. It's it's silly. The outrage is silly. And it's partisan. And the media is ignorant. And let me be real clear here because I don't want to cast this person in the media because most of them don't know. I was an elections lawyer for a number of years. I know these things. Most people in the media are not elections lawyers. They do not understand what ballot harvesting is. They do not understand the way it works. They do not understand historic concerns. Uh, they're, they're largely clueless on this issue. And yes, they do have sympathies to the left, and the left says it's a good idea, so they think it's a good idea, they, and, and they don't have the background. You know someone who does have the background? Jerry Nadler, the current chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Let's roll the tape on Jerry Nadler from 2004. Point, and I yield to Mr. Nadler. Thank you. I just... Uh... It's a very tempting point. I just, as a very experienced, practical politician from New York, I feel constrained to observe that in my experience in New York, uh, paper ballots are extremely susceptible to fraud. And at least with the old clunky voting machines that we have in New York, um, the, the, the deliberate fraud is way down. 
uh, compared to paper. When, they, when the machines break down, they vote on paper. We've had real problems. So that's a, that is, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. I'm simply observing that as a problem. There's got to be a way of getting the best of our methodologies. But in fact, the MIT studies have shown that hand-counted paper ballots are among the most reliable. It and at least reliable, if, it, if there's a miscount, you can discover it. You can't discover miscounts with these well, uh, machines. Well, maybe optical scan with paper. I, I want a paper trail. I want paper somewhere. But pure paper with no machines, uh, I, can show you pre I can show you experience which uh, would make but, your head spin. Uh-huh. And by the way, uh, we've had this experience in Georgia. When Karen Handel was Secretary of State, she actually documented uh, hundreds of cases of potential uh, voter irregularities with paper balloting and absentee balloting. Now, again, as I said, it happens. It's never been shown to have happened enough to affect the outcome of an election, but maybe it has. I, I actually I, I don't mind a paper ballot. But a paper ballot that is sent to your house and everyone fills it out at home and you allow progressive or conservative activists to show up and stand over the person while they're filling out their ballot or knock on their door and say, hey, we know you haven't handed in your ballot yet. Give us your ballot. We'll take it. I had a real problem with that because I can totally see how the, the problems and the hanky panky and the irregularities would come out on something like that. We should not go down this road. And, and to the extent that people in the media don't understand it, well, allow me to educate you on the problems. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Y'all go buy Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, please. You really do want to get their barbecue sauce. Uh, and, you know, it, so here's what's so interesting about Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. Yes, this is an ad, they're a sponsor, but I actually really do like it. It is good. Uh, I put it up on my Instagram. You should follow me on Instagram. You'll like me better there. Uh, but I but I put up a picture of Mr. Griffith's barbecue sauce and noted they were sponsoring the show. The number of people who came out of the woodwork who are like, oh, this is my favorite barbecue sauce. I've been using this since I was a kid. It is the oldest still commercially available barbecue sauce in the land. And it is a Georgia-based product right here in middle Georgia where I am. It's actually where it's manufactured. And I know it's on the store shelves at Walmart and Ingalls and the like. And you should really go try it. If you want a good barbecue sauce that you can get at the store, you don't have to slave over a stove making your own like I do sometimes. It's just a good one. It goes great with wings, by the way. Uh, so I got my Rectech smoker. And I have been smoking wings. I, I made jerk chicken the other day. I got that recipe out yesterday to you. Uh, and Or day before yesterday. I don't know what recipe is going out today. But anyway... Um, so I made wings and all you do, you, you, you smoke your wings, put some, some salt and pepper on them, really keep them really easy and plain, smoke them, get them done, and then heat up some Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. I just like it hot and you can put them on a bowl and it's almost like chips and dip, except it's wings and Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. It is a great appetizer when you're having a party. Um, so thank you to them for sponsoring the program. Uh, good people, great barbecue sauce. Now we got other stuff that has to be talked about, including, yeah, so do you all know what Hawk Nelson is? I, I don't hang on a second. I, I want a truth in advertising here. Let me let me uh, pull up my music app uh, on my computer because I'm a Mac guy. And so everything syncs. Yes, I intended for the music volume to be laid down. Hawk Nelson. Do I have anything by these people? Um, do, uh, I've got, oh, I've got one, um, Gloria, a Christmas. What is this? A, a Christmas, some such, um, is this anything? I have no idea. 
Apparently, I have one song in my playlist. Ooh. My package never came. Uh, okay, yeah, my, okay, that's apparently the only thing I have. Ooh, that was not good. No wonder I've never, this says, like, one play. <laughs> now it's got two. Uh, so the lead singer of Hawk Nelson has decided that he no longer believes in Jesus. Um, what's his name? Jonathan Steingard, frontman of Christian rock band Hawk Nelson, reveals he no longer believes in God. It, it's big news. Billboard Music has it. Uh, International Music Hits has it. Uh, People Magazine has it. And <gasps> he doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. This is big news. Let's get it out there. Another Christian has seen the light. It's always amazing to me how uh, the media seizes on these stories of uh, the people who lose their faith as if it's some big freaking deal when it's actually really not. And by the way, uh, none of these people have ever heard of Hawk Nelson. I'm, uh, I assure you that, that they have not. And so they're playing up this thing as if this is a giant deal and, and none of you have really even heard of it. But nonetheless, Christian rock act Hawk Nelson issued a statement supporting former frontman John Steingard on Wednesday following his announcement. He's leaving the band after crisis of faith. One of our best friends, one with whom we have walked, worked, and lived alongside for 20 years, revealed some of his innermost feelings on his faith journey this past week. Our mission at Hawk Nelson has always been to inspire and encourage all people with the truth that God is for them and not against them. And that message is most simple, purest form that they matter. So now we turn that truth toward one of our own, that God is still for John and he still matters. Why? Because that truth doesn't change just because we question it. And then that's a very sweet note. Um, so this guy says it, it feels like it's time for me to be honest. I hope this is not the end of the conversation, but the beginning, I hope this is encouraging to people who may feel the same, but are as afraid to speak as me. I want to be open. I want to be transparent. I open and transparent. They always use those, those buzzwords, but, um, he, he no longer, um, he no longer loves Jesus. His, his dad's a pastor and he's just not into it. It's been a process. He says he can no longer avoid it. And it's time to talk about it. He doesn't believe in God anymore. Now, I do have to say, my suspicion is something probably happened in most of these cases. Something does happen and you get mad at God. Things don't go your way. And so you decide that God must not be real. That tends to be what causes these things. I don't know the particular situation here, but it really is amazing how you've never heard of Hawk Nelson. And suddenly you would think they're the biggest Christian band ever the way the media is covering something like this tells you everything you need to know about the American media these days when it comes to faith topics and how they choose to cover them nationally. Why, hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Okay, uh, what do we have going on here? Um, we, we've actually, we got a bunch happening today, including the question of whether or not Georgia's bars and restaurants will be allowed to reopen. The governor is having a press conference this afternoon at four o'clock from what I'm told, where he is going to make that decision, uh, on whether or not to allow it to happen because we're getting towards the end of the month. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp has indicated he'll extend coronavirus restrictions on businesses and restaurants that are set to soon expire 
And he could also outline new guidelines that allow bars, nightclubs, and live performance venues to reopen. The governor is expected to detail his coronavirus strategy at a Thursday press conference at the state capitol, where he's expected to address a sweep of safety guidelines that are scheduled to lapse on Monday. This is from the AJC, by the way, Greg Bluestein. Kemp has steadily rolled back restrictions since late April when he allowed close contact businesses to reopen and restaurants to resume dine-in services as he signed his executive order. But he ordered bars, nightclubs, and entertainment venues to remain shuttered through the end of the month to give owners more time to prepare for strict safety guidelines he has yet to announce. Those businesses have been closed since April 3rd. Statewide order took effect. At a stop in Macon on Wednesday, the Republican said his aggressive approach in lifting coronavirus limits was reinvigorating the state's stalled economy and downplayed figures that showed a recent rise in confirmed cases. Pressed on whether he could ease more regulations, he said he was confident Georgians would follow the guidance and let him do so. He added, we can't keep fighting the virus from our living room. His remarks come as state figures show an increase in week-to-week cases of COVID-19 in Georgia, though it's unclear whether it's a statistical blip or whether it represents a marked change. Kemp described it as a backlog from 15,000 tests recently logged by the state that date to late April. Georgia began easing coronavirus restrictions in late April, drawing bipartisan condemnation and sharp warnings. Kemp has not declared victory over the disease and has stressed a methodological approach to containing the outbreak, but he also expressed confidence Georgia can avoid a second wave of the disease as people, if people use good common sense. Now, uh, what, I, I actually don't have anything from the governor's office on this. Uh, that they, they have not told me anything, but I'm going to speculate, which is always dangerous because I could get it wrong. But... If we look at what other states and uh, countries are doing, they're beginning to allow bars to open and some nightclubs to open, but are doing so with a lot of restrictions. For example, uh, greatly curtailing the capacity of the bars and nightclubs, uh, requiring, for example, no dance floors, no live music, no karaoke, things like that. Um, making it difficult for people because, you know, I mean, for example, so our church on Sunday met outside. Uh, We met outside. It it was actually, man, it was nice. You know, so it's one of those things. Um, I'm not great of late about going to church for a lot of reasons. I have not been great about going to church. And not being able to go to church made me realize how much I missed it. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, I guess. And so we went at 10 o'clock this past Sunday. This coming Sunday, I think Christy told me that we're moving it to 9 a.m. They're moving it to 9 a.m. and they're doing the same thing. Uh, They're going to have it outside again. They're going to close down the street. It'll be less than an hour We'll be spread out. There's a little park out in front of the church. We'll be spread out down the road. And we'll all be there together. And it'll be cooler Sunday morning. Uh, so the, the problem with 10 is that the sun was high enough in the sky that it was overcoming the trees in the park by the church. And so people, it was getting really hot at 10 o'clock. So this Sunday, we will do it while the sun is lower in the sky. We'll have to get up earlier to go. Some people will grumble about that. Uh, 
Although our, our church does have a church service at 9 a.m. anyway, so it'll be the perfect balance. We'll just have to get up early as a family and go. But man, was it nice to go and, and, and nice to be there, but we all had to spread out. And some people who, who wore masks, some people didn't. We didn't actually wear masks. We just stayed by ourselves uh, away from other people. And we were able to get it done. Well, the problem with, with bars and nightclubs in particular is the um, the the confined spaces. People get to drinking and, and carrying on and stuff. I, and, and the reason I, I went, I missed the whole point of, of talking about being outside. The reason we did it outside instead of doing a bunch of services inside is because we wanted to sing. When you worship the Lord, you sing. And there is some data. It is mixed data, but there is some data. Uh, that singing, uh, if you are infected, your voice projects, you spread the virus further. And given the way people sing and inhale, they're more likely to ingest the water vapor of the infected person and the virus spreads more quickly. If you do it outside, there actually, there's a study now, and again, it is Chinese, so full disclosure there, but they studied 7,500 cases in China and could only find one person who they think may have gotten the virus outdoors. Now, the reason I bring that up is because there actually are a bunch of uh, studies around the world that seem to be coming out showing the same thing, that there aren't cases that can be found, ran random ones, random ones, and they can't confirm them. Uh, so nothing concrete showing that the virus spreads outside. So if you're outside, you're socially distancing, you're outside, uh, it looks like, you're, one, you're going to get vitamin D, which is good for you. We do know from coronaviruses and respiratory viruses that if you get naturally produced vitamin D from the sun, you're actually in, in better stead than everybody else. You're not going to not get the virus, but if you get it, the odds are you're going to get a much weaker case than someone who has been sheltering in place inside all the time and hasn't been in the sun in a while. Uh, being outside in the sun is actually a great, great way to, to help you fight colds, to fight coronaviruses, to fight respiratory distress. It, it's good. The vitamin D does you good. Well, in a, in a dark bar or nightclub and with the air circulating, do you know what the filter filtration system is? Do you have a UV light filter on your, your air system? What? You could spread it. And so they've got to come up with guidelines in Georgia. And my suspicion is when they come up with these guidelines, what they will do is they will limit capacity. They will probably limit things like karaoke and, and uh, live music in, in confined spaces. They will have certain square footage requirements, but otherwise they're going to let them reopen. That's my theory at least, but I know nothing. We will find out this afternoon. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it here tomorrow as to what the governor is going to do. It, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, how he threads the needle on this. And one of the things they're looking at is that spike. And, and let me give you those numbers just so you understand what I'm talking about here. And I, I've mentioned this enough this week. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it today. Uh, but there is a definite spike in cases in Georgia. Uh, on May 18th, there were 967 cases on May 19th and then falls back on May 19th to 750 and then 622 and then 612 and then 573. And there's a ramp up as well on May 13th, 757, 754, May 14th, 830, May 16th, 480. Uh, that's a weekend, May 17th, 347. And then it shoots up to that 967. And it looks like, and, and there's a wave. I mean, you see the wave and it goes back down and then you see a little bit of a bump and it heads down again. And that bump is that statistical anomaly on May 18th, where it looks like it is the result of tests that have come back in. 
And it looks like it is also the result of more testing. And if that's the case, there's nothing to worry about. But here, here's why I say that and why you you don't why I don't think you need to panic about this. The number of cases in, for example, the metro Atlanta area are going down. The growth rate where you look at the counties and see where the spread is, that spread is not happening in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, That spread is happening outside of, uh, with the exception of Fulton County, where it was uh, a big spike in testing, uh, you're seeing a continued reduction in cases in, for example, Hall County, Gwinnett County, DeKalb County, Cobb County, really even uh, Fulton County. And, and the, the bump ups correlate to increased testing. Where you see the big spikes in the state of Georgia come from rural farming areas and migrant populations. And that in and of itself suggests that This is a spread within the migrant worker Hispanic community, and the state moved very quickly to contain that. The state moved very quickly to uh, lock in uh, treatment in those areas, make sure those people understood that if they showed up to get help, they weren't going to get deported. We just wanted to take care of the virus, and that has had a positive impact in curtailing the spread of the virus in those populations. So now we'll see, is there community spread or not? I I presume we're going to see that there's not community spread in those cases. Uh, But the governor at four o'clock today going to have his press conference to tell us what he's going to do about bars and restaurants or bars and nightclubs. They've remained closed and there's still a shelter in place order for vulnerable populations until June 12th. Now I've been told not to expect that to come off early, that vulnerable people will still have to shelter in place another uh, few weeks uh, as we run into June. A reminder, a couple of reminders for you. One, uh, if you want today's recipe, you know what? I, I, I'm curious myself because I have no idea what I what recipe I have logged for today. And it goes out at 1215. I, I did it over the weekend. I decided, you know what? I've been promising you people I would send you recipes. I better get the ball rolling again. Uh, so what did I send out? I have no idea. We're going to find out together. If you want to get whatever recipe it is and what ha- So let me explain what happens with this recipe was here we go. Um, oh, 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 ooh, it's it's my favorite sandwich. Uh, 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 croquet monsieur. It, it, yeah, it's French. I realize, but this is really good. Um, so what you do is you, you know, those, those King Hawaiian rolls, you get the 12 or the 24 pack. So you slice them across. So you have a top and a bottom and then you layer ham and Swiss cheese. And then you make the special sauce. It's a French sauce and it's easy to make it's flour and butter. And then you add honey mustard and you spread it over the layers and then you bake it in the oven until everything gets really, really gooey and melty. Oh, it's so good. It is my favorite sandwich, bar none. I love this sucker. Um, and and so I send that out today. At, at, it's logged for 12.15. And I sent out the meat rub yesterday. I sent out the jerk chicken the day before. So what happens, if you text recipe to 33777, what happens is you get a text message back and says, what's your email address? You send your email address, and then you get an email and says, hey, Uh, if you missed today's recipe, here's a link to get all of the recipes. And then you just get on the list. And from thereafter, you start getting all the recipes. Now, if you do, if you go on and do it, text recipe to three, three, seven, 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 get it done. You should get today's recipe in your inbox. 
I, I love being able to do this. And, you know, this goes, let, let me jump back to earlier in the show when you weren't here listening. You should have been. But I mentioned having a connection with your audience. Uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh being on fire day. I see a a, a, a a lefty is emailing, demanding comment on on my defense of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Rush Limbaugh does not need me to defend him. He's the, the, the most listened to talk show host in America. He can defend himself, but I will defend him and, and say it, it's just amazing how people love to grab media matters, left-wing hits on Rush Limbaugh, um, more often than not taken out of context of what he's actually doing. They, the man is on the radio three hours a day, five days a week, and has been doing it for, what, 30 years? And it, it's amazing they're not attacking him every day, which, which goes to tell you, uh, just how how perfect the guy is as a radio show host, and it's just it, it's it's I demand it. Why are you defending him? And everybody wanted to pick fights, and then of course you've got all the people. Oh, I'm so ashamed that I used to love Rush Limbaugh. Now I just can't. Come on, people. It's it, it just it, it's it's silly. Uh, okay. Importantly, very importantly, um. The reason that I do the whole recipe thing is is one. So I wrote a book a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife and I had near-death experiences, and I thought, you, you know, if something were to happen to, to Christian me, I, I need to write a book for my kids with advice on getting through life without us. And it included a number of their favorite recipes, or, or it, in full disclosure, some of them I hope will be their favorite recipes. <laughs> uh, my kids are picky eaters, uh, but as the older they get, the, the more they eat. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it, it dawned on me uh, having a near-death experience several years ago that there is way more to life than politics. And when you see your entire, um, when you see your entire life consumed by politics, and then you're pulled out to the sidelines for a while, you realize, you know, there's more to life. There is more to life than politics. And I wanted my kids to understand that. And I wanted them to understand that, you know, uh, break bread with your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is not the person who lives immediately physically next to you. Your neighbor is the person in need in your community and your community as a whole. Uh, think of the good Samaritan who crossed the road to help a man not of his race who he did not know uh, on his way to someone else, uh, the person he came into immediate contact with. It, there, there's your neighbor. And you should not uh, determine who your neighbor is based on politics. You should determine just, just that you're going to commit to trying to be nice to people, even if you disagree with them. That's one of the hard things to do. Like, for example, um, I, I get some of you actually send me angry emails when I say that Donna Brazil is a friend. Donna Brazil, of course, uh, in controversy on TV right now um, because she she took the Lord. Well, she said Jesus's name in an unpleasant way last night on TV and, and said the First Amendment didn't protect you from a lion, uh, which it does. But Donna and I disagree on politics. And man, she is a family friend. I will never forget years ago. Uh, I was at a CNN debate in Arizona. And Donna was late coming and she showed up with the stack of beads and doubloons. She had been out at Mardi Gras the night before in New Orleans and had collected all of the stuff for my kids. And she really is uh, a, just a great person. I, I enjoy her company. Uh, she, she's a fabulous person. And we disagree on politics, but we agree on cooking. We, we love to make gumbo. Um, we, we love to watch LSU play and we can find common ground on other things. And, and she, she's just a, a very funny person. 
And I, I tell people this, and more and more I encounter people in a way I used to not. But I more and more encounter people who can't fathom that I could be friends with or enjoy the company of someone who they find horrible based on their political views. And I used to be that way too, I got to tell you, and then I nearly died and realized how poisonous politics can be and how I should be willing to be civil with, if not friends with people with whom I may disagree. Uh, and and I, I, I don't agree with Donna on everything, but my goodness, uh, she, she's just a great person. Uh, and, you know, it was so funny, you know, this, I've said this before, one of the funny things about going to CNN. So when I went to CNN, uh, I, and I believe Donna was one of them, I don't know for sure, but I think Donna was one of the, the Democrats at CNN who was horrified CNN would hire me back in 2009 when word got out. I mean, livid that CNN would hire me. In fact, there were some of the Republican consultants who were on CNN who were also horrified CNN would hire some wing nutty blogger like me from middle Georgia. And, um, it, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's crazy and that they did. And then we wound up becoming friends. And one of the funniest things, and I've told Charlie this before, that one of the, the funniest things about being at CNN with some of these people I grew up, you know, when I grew up, Donna Brazil and James Carville and Paul Begall, they were the enemy because they worked for Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton was bad. Uh, and then here I am actually getting along with these people on TV. And one of the things that we discovered very quickly is that we all liked and disliked the same people in politics on both sides of the aisle. And, and the common strain is one, and it's one of my frustrations on TV, like, I was a lawyer for six years and I ran political campaigns. I've done polling. I've done mail. I've done TV. Uh, I've organized photo shoots. I, I've, I've done uh, robocalls. I've done door to door. I've done uh, coalition building. I, I've, I've negotiated candidate endorsements. I've, I've done all of these things on campaigns for Congress, for state house, for state Senate. I was a volunteer lawyer for president Bush's campaign in 2000 and 2004. And it is amazing to me, the number of people who get on television as senior campaign strategist and they've licked an envelope and stuck a stamp on an envelope in the back office of somebody's campaign or they slept around on the campaign and that's it. I know one guy who was referred to, uh, well, no, I, I, that would give his identity away and I don't want to do that to him. I know one guy who very, who worked on a very prominent campaign and to a person Every single person and the candidate himself have told me the guy actually did nothing but uh, sleep with his girlfriend on the back couch in the campaign office at night uh, and was caught multiple times doing this and actually did nothing on the campaign and added no value to the campaign and yet is now a, a big-time celebrity uh, as a campaign person. And when you listen, you realize this guy doesn't actually understand how campaigns work, and yet He's on TV talking about campaigns as if he's an expert. It's just, it's an amazing TV world. Um, I, I, I got, I, I'm, I'm looking at all the stuff I wanted to talk about and didn't get to today. <laughs> the, I, oh, I, I know. I, I got to get to this one because um, I had it yesterday. L listen to this. <laughs> this is from Reuters. Along with hairstylists, campaign operators, and the hundreds of others who make magic happen for TV and film, Hollywood is counting on a new supporting member for future productions. COVID-19 consultants. 
The coronavirus pandemic has prompted producers, movie studios, and workers' unions to seek expert advice on how to safely reopen film and TV sets, which shut down worldwide in mid-March. In demand are epidemiologists and other public health specialists to provide detailed strategies for dealing with large crews who work in cramped spaces, makeup artists who get face-to-face with stars, and actors who kiss, hug, and fight on set. The shutdown has taken a severe financial toll across the industry, as well as on cities such as Los Angeles that benefit economically from production. Restarting is important to companies, including Netflix, Walt Disney, and others who need fresh programming to engage audiences. Man, I want to be a COVID-19 consultant. I've been a reasonable voice on radio. I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. I could be an expert in profit on this. It's like the diversity consultant scam. And let me be clear here. Yes, uh, I am a, a, a firm believer that all of these nonsensical diversity consultant people are saying, like when I went to law school and this was, this was in the late nineties, I went to law school and had to do the, you know, the, the diversity round table, because you're going to law school. Now we need to sit around and make sure you know that if you're white, you're bad. That, that was essentially what it amounted to. If you're white conservative and Christian, Oh, you're the worst. It was ridiculous, and I got to tell you, uh, I don't know any, anyone in my law school class, and, and I, I, I have a friend of mine who graduated from law school this year. They, they went through the same scam and said the exact same thing happened, that with very few exceptions, people went into that thing and sucked it up and did it because they were required to do it, and they went out and they all made jokes about it, and that happens every year. The, the fact that law schools in particular, with a straight face, and, and colleges and universities will do these diversity scams with their students, and all the students, they go in and they go out, and, and, and the true believers went in truly believing, and the other people all went out thinking this was ridiculous. <laughs> I remember this is so cruel of me. It, it is. And I'm going to just say it up front. I, I'm, I'm being mean here and I'm sorry. My freshman year of college, it was, we had this diversity experience where you had to do tr- <laughs> trust falls, trust falls. And one of the kids got up and fell back and they fell through the arms to the ground. I was not in the group that was doing this. Um, I wanted, but I, I was the jerk uh, student who protested the whole thing as being ridiculous, and and just wanted no part of it. And I, I was, I was defined. You know, I, so I have always been one of those people. Who I I will go along to get along as best I can. But when you tell me I absolutely must do something and it's absolutely r- ridiculous, uh, I, I will drag my feet. And I just, I was not participating in the stupid trust fall. And we go in, and it just so happens to be that the person who fell through was the one true believer who took this all seriously to begin with. Nobody else in the group took any of it seriously except this the one girl, and she happened to be the one who fell through the arm. She, she kind of fell awkwardly. She twisted her body. So she didn't come down flat on her back. She kind of came down on one side with her arms, and she wound up getting hurt. and felt bad for her that she got hurt, but after... <laughs> let me down! It just... You fell and they didn't catch you, so you can't trust them now. First of all, it was a stupid thing to begin with uh, to do, 
and, and and then you fell, you twisted your body when you fell, which you weren't supposed to do. So you've got some culpability there. But oh, she couldn't trust anybody after that because the, the 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 wall of trust was breached through by falling through the uh, just the whole thing's ridiculous. It's, it's these scammy people who got it. We're going to be a diversity consultant at colleges. We're going to make millions of dollars by making the 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 white kids from the South feel really bad because they're also Christian. We're, let's let's go in and teach them critical race theory. It's like these stupid diversity departments, the women and gender studies scams. Good Lord. Uh, the, the, the degree that you get when you want to teach school or, or, or scam people with diversity. Hey, we're going to be a human resources worker in the Fortune 500 and make people's lives miserable as we fly around on our broomsticks telling people you're not open and tolerant enough. I just it's it, the whole thing is ridiculous and scammy. And now we can add the COVID-19 people to it. Hey, I'm an epidemiologist and I really hate being a doctor because I'm not really good at it and didn't do good in med school. I'm going to go to Hollywood and make a whole bunch of money charging millions to be a consultant on a Hollywood film that you know they're going to do that. People are going to milk this for all it's worth. But think of the prurient interest in all of this. <gasps> we can't have kissing on the set. You might spread the virus. We're suddenly going to have a bunch of, of of Christian films that never even started out to be Christian films. There'll be no kissing and no sex because uh, the the COVID nineteen people will say, no, you can't do that. You're going to have to have what what was the uh, what was it um oh what was the move was it airplane airplane two the the the, the full body condom that the guy walked around in. What was it? I it, it's been years since I saw it, but that's what they're going to make you. Do. Oh, you want to have sex on this on the scene? Well, I know what you're going to have to do, and it's basically two people coming out in in, in pressure suits. <laughs> I mean, you can have all sorts of fun uh, toying with these people in Hollywood over this stuff, and, and claim ex. You could make real money and essentially just be a con artist in Hollywood uh, with COVID nineteen. It's going to happen. Unions representing actors and set employees, including SAG-AFTRA, uh, Etsy, and, and Directors Guild of America have hired experts from Harvard and the University of California to develop guidelines. All are looking to Gavin Newsom, California's governor, who is taking input from labor and industry representatives. Oh, you're going to get a unionized guild of epidemiological experts for COVID-19. Actors are watching closely. Actress Anna Kendrick, in an interview promoting her HBO Max series Love Life, said some ideas she's heard sound like they're from someone who's never been on a film set. In my experience, people on film sets, as opposed to people in an airport, we all know we're on the same team. We're all just trying to keep each other safe. I think it can be done, but I haven't seen super great solutions yet. Okay, so what, 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 what would you do? You're on a film set. Uh, how about the crew all need to wear face masks? How about that? How about we get rid of the communal food trays uh, within areas uh, that everybody's got to spread out to eat? Uh, how about we do no sharing of equipment? And how about we do regular sanitation of props? And hey, that might be it. Oh, and we can do regular testing for COVID-19. Everybody's get regularly tested. So on, on the porn sets, you have to get regularly tested for HIV. And on, on the regular sets, you get regularly tested for COVID-19. That that could be a solution here. I mean, that is, it's what they do. Um, it, man, and, and the, the little busybodies are going to try to wreck everything. And, you know, at some point, I, I do have to wonder. And, and seriously here, I, I'm being somewhat flippant, I realize. But on a serious note here. 
you're going to have the, the scammers who come out and take advantage of this, just like you do with the diversity consultant nonsense. A, a lot of these people, they're, they're, they they can't make a living elsewhere, so they're going to scam their way into being experts on this stuff. And then they're going to make a bunch of demands that wind up getting mocked and not treating seriously. And ultimately what's going to happen is a group of people are no longer going to take this stuff seriously when they should. It's very much this thing where we're seeing on the left and the right now and it's unfortunate. Um, the whole idea of face masks. Listen, I think if you're in a crowded place, wear a face mask. But I'm not going to call the cops on you if you're not wearing a face mask. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna shame you on social media if you're wearing a face mask. And th- there are a number of people out there who seem to be um, treating this as some sort of virtue. Say, if I, I saw someone yesterday on Twitter say it was just virtue signaling to wear a mask in public. Uh, hello, no, my wife has lung cancer. I'm trying not to get her sick, so when I go in a crowd, I'm gonna wear a face mask uh, so that I don't get the virus, so that I don't give it to my wife. It has nothing to do with virtue signaling. That that's not a very intelligent argument. But there are also the the people on the left. Who are like, if you don't wear a face, like Joe Biden the other day, Joe Biden and his wife were together and socially distanced from everyone else wearing a mask in public. The guidelines say you don't have to do that. And yet what he wanted to do is provide a political contrast with the president who hasn't worn a face mask in public. How? Why the heck are we politicizing face masks? I'm not, if you're not going to wear one, don't wear one. And if you get sick, uh, you cover your costs. If you want to wear a face mask, wear a face mask, but don't think that you have some sort of brighter halo over your head because you're wearing a face mask when other people aren't. And by the way, when you're out in public, walking by yourself in the park or on the side of the road, you don't need to wear a mask. But it's not the end of the world if the government tells you to wear a mask in public. Your your liberty is not ended if you are told by the government to wear a mask in public. There is a global pandemic Uh, With a lot of research that we've gotten wrong, with a lot of information we don't know, with the situation changing on a daily basis, and we would all really like to stamp out the virus so that people can get back to work. And if you don't get back to work, we're just going to have to do more of PPP, which, you know, reminds me, uh, if you still need access to PPP, there's still money. And, And to some degree, I take that as an encouraging sign that there's still money in the Paycheck Protection Program right now available for you. If your business still needs it and you want to get into it, uh, reach out to my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. They're in noon in Georgia. You don't have to be in Georgia, though, to get help from them. Anywhere nationwide uh, can get uh, First Liberty to help them. And all you do is you go to their website. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. Uh, There's an apply now button on their website and you click it and you fill out the paperwork to get into the payroll protection program and they'll help you get in. They can't guarantee you'll get in, but they'll do their best to help you get into the payroll protection program. And uh, what they need you to know is that you need to get your payroll in order. So you've got quarterly filings for payroll and stuff like that. You're going to have to file those things. Um, You're going to need to have that stuff ready as documentation for your payroll. Keep in mind with PPP, also 25% of the money you get from the government can go to offset expenses like rent and utilities and not just payroll. 75% has to go to payroll. And if you're if you've got a, a small business and you're self-employed, you can take advantage of this sort of stuff as well. First Liberty's there to help you and answer your questions. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's their website. Uh, good people, they're happy to help you if they can. Uh, thank you to them for sponsoring the program. But whether they did or not, in fact, I was telling people to go to them before they started sponsoring, and now they are. And and please do uh, go take advantage of their help if you can. And again, they can't guarantee it, but they want to help you get in. It is remarkable though that. 
we've still got money in the program, which does suggest now, now unemployment numbers have come out and roughly 25% of the country now is unemployed. And believe it or not, that's actually the good news because the unemployment growth rate has slowed dramatically. And in some areas of the country, people are starting to go back to work. In fact, right now, the Republicans in Congress are trying to incentivize getting people to go back to work. Josh Howley from the Senate is putting forward a plan that will actually pay people a federal government bonus if they go back to work. It's not a bad idea. Um, if, If they're willing and able... Because, you know, right now the Democrats have wanted to incentivize people staying home. The the Democrats have incentivized people uh, paying them $600 a week to stay unemployed. And, and the Republican plan now is, hey, let's pay people to get them back to work because uh, employers are starting to say we can't get our employees to come back to work. Are we going to be punished in the PPP program because our employees have chosen not to come back to work? They would rather have unemployment. And we're starting to see that we're going to have to find a way around that. We don't want these businesses punished because their employees are getting paid by Nancy Pelosi to stay out of work. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi, by the way, turns out she is the second in line to the presidency of the United States. Now, that should scare you. But, yeah, she's second in line to the president of the United States. If the vice, if something happens to the vice president, Nancy Pelosi becomes president. If something happens to the president, the vice president, there's no new vice president. You go to Pelosi. She's second in line to the presidency, which should terrify all of you. But nonetheless, she's not getting checked for COVID-19. She has not been tested for COVID-19. And think of all the media outrage over the president and the vice president not getting tested, members of the cabinet not getting tested. She's the speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America. And she hasn't been tested. Why is she getting a pass on this stuff? Maybe it was all political and partisan to begin with. Yeah, the phone lines are still up, and I'll give you the phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I would be remiss if I did not uh, also point out uh, that Dynamic Money does sponsor the program. You you hear Chris Burns' ad uh, during the program. It's not really an ad, which is why I like it so much, because he's a good guy, and you get a sense of it. He's not trying to sell you a product. Um, If you – and listen, with the economic news out there, I know – that there are some of you out there who may very well need a financial planner to sit down with and talk about stuff. And let me encourage you, they can do it by Zoom. Uh, they can do FaceTime, whatever. Skype, you can go to their office. They can come to you. But th- go to dynamicmoney.com. They don't have commission sales. Um, it, it's all flat fee stuff, so they're not going to try to sell you a product. Uh, they're just going to give you good advice. And and Christy and I have used them for a while and am a big uh, fan of theirs, and Chris and I have gotten to be, in fact, Chris and I have gotten to be such good friends that I'm having to use a different financial planner within his office because whenever we get together, uh, we sit down and visit, and we never actually get around to the financial plan anymore, so we're having to change things. But uh, go to dynamicmoney.com if you need help. They're not going to try to sell you something. They're just going to give you good advice. I am fascinated by the defenses of these riots in Minnesota over um, George Floyd's death. And I got to tell you, I am I understand the anger. And really, you should be angry, too, at what happened. Uh, but burning down a city, which is essentially what's happening, people stormed into a target and stole everything out of the target and, and smashed machines and stuff. That target's never going to never going to hurt you again. It really is just, um, it's amazing to me 
in a level of hypocrisy. We saw these riots. By the way, they're, they're organizing protests in Memphis today, and people aren't wearing masks. And this is why I, I think you can see and understand some of the skepticism of people about the, the, the mask tyrants out there who demand everybody wears a mask at all times and is going to call the cops on you if you don't. So wait a second. You're okay with a mass protest and no one's wearing masks in the protest. Uh, and and you, you, you're okay with them burning buildings down. And people justify it. Understandable outrage. It is what it is. No, it, there's no justification. Violence on uh, begetting violence. It, it, there's no justification for it. What happened is wrong. And every single one of you who have seen the video should recognize that it's wrong, including you white supremacists who have started listening to me because you're upset about my take on Albert Arbery and you're already sending me emails justifying the death of this man. Uh, No one should ever have a cop place their knee on their neck and kill them when they've been detained. Accidents do happen, by the way. But... You need to watch the video if you think this is an accident. I mean, the guy, he's detained. The police did not have to have uh, their knee on the guy's neck as he's struggling to breathe and saying as much that he can't breathe. You should be outraged by it. But you should also be outraged by the people who think that the solution is to go burn down the neighborhood. That's ridiculous. And and uh, to some degree, it's taking advantage of the situation. I've seen the video of the people storming out of the, the Target with the flat screen TVs and the products. How does one justify the other? It doesn't. And, and we, we live in a world where a lot of people who are outraged about uh, what happened to Mr. Floyd are, are going to give a pass to the rioters. Go, oh, well, they're angry. Well, you should be angry, but that doesn't mean you should burn a place down. There were no riots for Ahmaud Arbery down in South Georgia. There were protests and they were peaceful, and that's a good thing. But... Then, of course, you have the, these these crowds of people, and the media sees the crowds of people in, in New York or Florida or Georgia or, or Missouri, and they're like, oh, they're not wearing masks. They're not social distancing. We must do something. And then you see the the, the protests and the crowds in, in Minneapolis and in Memphis and elsewhere. They're like, oh, well, justifiable outrage. We Who are we to say they should not be together without masks and not socially distancing? Well, good for the goose, good for the gander, I suppose. But, man, something's got to be done about the George Floyd situation. This, listen, you, when it's an isolated incident, you you can dismiss it. But there is a recurring pattern around the country. And I do think conservatives, just because progressives are outraged about it, doesn't mean we should go in the other other direction and say, oh, it's no big deal. No, 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 it is a big deal. And and there needs to be just justice should be blind. And we it should flow like a river. And conservatives need to actually stand up and say something. We don't have to go down the 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 um, white privilege road and stuff and the, the critical race theory road the left wants, but we should take a stand.